3: Sans Pants Radio, Australia's dumbest podcast network.
2: This is News Fighters, where we fight the news so you don't have to. With Dylan Behan.
0: G'day, everyone. Welcome to News Fighters. It's Wednesday, June the 2nd, 2021. Uh, News Fighters, if you haven't listened to it before, is a hilarious news comedy podcast where I rip apart. The big stories in Australian news, media and politics. And it's presented by me, former and current and legend eternal comedy video editor guy, Dylan Bain. Now stick around, later on my interview guest is the China correspondent for the Australian Financial Review, Michael Smith, who I've mentioned previously on this show. He was, uh, let's just say, uh, ushered out of China unceremoniously uh, in September last year,
3: shortly after midnight, there's a you know huge knock at my front door. So staggered downstairs in my boxer shorts and open the door and there's seven uniformed police at, at my door. Um, so when something like this happens in China, it's 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 pretty daunting stuff.
0: Okay, but first of all, I think it's been a while since we've uh, talked about China on the show, so I thought let's do a little recap of what's been uh, making headlines lately. Uh, last week there was this.
3: US President Joe Biden is ordering American intelligence agencies to ramp up their probe into whether COVID-19 leaked from a laboratory in Wuhan, giving them 90 days to come up with more evidence.
0: Yeah, look out Joe Biden or China might put tariffs on your barley and lobsters like they did to us when we called for an inquiry into COVID-19. Or worse, you might hurt their feelings. A senior Chinese diplomat has accused Australia of hurting his country's feelings by demanding an investigation into the origins of the coronavirus. Also, in terms of China-Australia relations, this high-profile court case has been in the news.
3: The trial of Australian writer Yang Jun has begun in Beijing. Dr Yang was arrested by Chinese authorities in January 2019 and was charged with espionage last October. Australia's ambassador to China was today turned away from a heavily guarded Beijing court where the espionage trial of an Australian-Chinese blogger was set to get underway.
0: Yes, China has arrested an Australian blogger, despite the fact nobody has even claimed to be a blogger since about 2008. It's a bit like arresting somebody for having a really bad MySpace profile. Why, why is Tom in your top eight? And, and do you really need that Bright song to prove you're an emo? Well, surely Young Hen Jun, being a foreign citizen, meant he at least got a fair and open trial, right? Australia has repeatedly requested evidence of the charges levelled against him to no avail. The foreign minister has accused the Chinese government of
2: shutting Australia out, calling for officials to be let into the courtroom. Chinese authorities have not provided any explanation or evidence for the charges facing Dr Young.
3: The courts in China are subordinate to the Communist Party. That means the Communist Party in China controls the judiciary
0: and the conviction rate in Chinese courts is at 99%. Yes, a 99% conviction rate. I mean, Peter Dutton heard that and he's like, oh, how, how can I do this? I, I've got Twitter users who are mean to me. Can I put them on trial in Beijing? I'm Peter Dutton. China-Australia tensions have also been on the rise, thanks to a lot of talk about war lately. One of Australia's top security bosses has warned our country should brace for the curse of war. In his ANZAC message to staff, Home Affairs Secretary Michael Pizzullo declared the drums of war are beating louder.
2: Home <laughs> Affairs Secretary
3: Mike Pizzullo's gone global for his comments in his ANZAC Day address. In a world of perpetual tension and dread, the drums of war beat. Free nations again hear the beating drums.
0: Yes, the drums of war are beating. And Australia is starting to look like the drunk guy at a house party who just found a set of bongos and won't shut the hell up.
3: The Morrison government is escalating projects to boost our defence force amid growing concerns of a regional conflict. The United States is planning to base more of its weapons in the Northern Territory as tensions rise with China. The government says the US alliance is vital to Australia's defence. The Morrison government is pouring $270 billion into defence over the next decade. To
2: make sure that the Australian Defence Force is in the strongest possible position in a very uncertain
3: time. It comes days after Defence Minister Peter Dutton said a war involving China over Taiwan should not be discounted
0: And it's not just a potential war over Taiwan that Peter Dutton's preparing for. He's also decided to wage a massive culture war against LGBTQI-inclusive morning teas in his department.
2: Defence Minister Peter Dutton
0: has banned all dress-up events at Defence to stop his department from pursuing a woke agenda. Military personnel had been advised to wear rainbow clothing at a morning tea to mark the international day against homophobia, biphobia, interphobia and transphobia. Yes, Peter Dutton has vowed to boost morale in the Defence Forces and nothing boosts morale like banning pro-inclusivity events. Uh, China's hit back at Australia's... Loud and annoying drum solo.
3: We urge certain individuals in Australia to shake off the Cold War mentality. Stop making irresponsible remarks. Abiding by the one China principle is an
0: important feature of China-Australia relations. But not to worry, our Prime Minister Scott Morrison has his head around the issues, especially um, Australia's support for the one China policy in regards to Taiwan. I repeat, the one china policy do we stand with taiwan
3: um we've always uh, understood uh, the, uh, the 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 one system two countries arrangement and uh, and we will continue to follow our policies there
0: so does that mean we stand with Taiwan? one country
3: two systems i should say yeah.
0: we stand with, we stand with taiwan
2: well, we, we always have stood for freedom in our part of the world
0: look to be fair scott morrison had a little uh a little memory blank or a little slip of the tongue there. Appeared to mix up Taiwan and Hong Kong. Hong Kong, of course, uh, being subject to the one country, two systems arrangement. So I'm sure Scott Morrison will uh, just admit he's made a mistake and uh, won't double down on it. You made a recent comment about Taiwan. You referred
2: to it as one country, two systems. Why did you say that?
0: Well, what we know is
3: that we have a situation with China where we've recognised Uh, We've recognised how they uh, see these relationships within the region, and particularly in relation to Taiwan and formerly Hong Kong and and things of that nature. And so Australia understands that. That's always
0: been the basis of our policies. But did he make a mistake in that comment? No. All right, Prime Minister, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Oh, geez, with that kind of never-admit-your-wrong attitude, I'm surprised Scott Morrison didn't like... Admit he was in Hawaii to fight the New South Wales bushfires. The best place to fight the New South Wales bushfires is from Honolulu. I repeat, Honolulu. It's my Scott Morrison impression. Anyways, when we come back... We interview an Australian citizen who was almost arbitrarily detained in China last year. ABC journalist Bill Birtles and Australian Financial Review correspondent Mike Smith fleeing China after coordinated midnight police raids on their homes.
3: Michael Smith from the Australian Financial
0: Review and the ABC's Bill Birtles were the last two Australian correspondents working for Australian media outlets in China. The China correspondent for the Australian Financial Review, Michael Smith, is here to talk Taiwan, Xinjiang, Hong Kong and the midnight knock on his door that led him to flee China. Stick around.
1: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze,
2: relax,
1: and think about
2: work
0: All right, joining me now is uh, Michael Smith, the uh, China correspondent for the Australian Financial Review and author of the great new book, The Last Correspondent, Dispatches from the Frontline of Xi's New China. Now, Michael Smith, uh, listeners of the show might remember we talked about last year, him and the ABC's Bill Bertels were unceremoniously ushered out of uh, China uh, kind of last minute. Michael, what, what's, what was the story there? It was You had a midnight knock at your door. Is that what happened?
3: Yeah, it was all it was all very dramatic in um early September last year. We we'd been Bill and I'd been warned by the Australian government that that we needed to get out of China. We we weren't safe. We didn't really know why, so we you know, I'd packed my bags, bought a ticket out the next day and went off to bed and then shortly after midnight there's a you know, huge knock at my front door. So staggered downstairs in my boxer shorts and opened the door and there's seven uniform police at, at my door. Um so when something like this happens in China it's it's, it's pretty daunting stuff and and it turns out that some of them from the were from the Ministry of State security which is you know it's like having the FBI turn up mm-hmm. at your house but much much worse so yeah look they came into the house sat me down they they filmed me uh, it was extremely intimidating and they sort of read out this three-page statement which basically said I was a person of interest in a national security investigation and and I wasn't allowed to leave China
0: uh, and so it was almost like you weren't kicked out it was kind of like if you're at a nightclub and they're like all right time to go mate (laughs) it was a bit like that wasn't it (laughs) like you weren't you you kind of there was just rumblings that it's time you weren't safe Uh, uh, why do you think this was is it a is it a a kind of a poor? you were pawns in this kind of game is it this kind of hostage diplomacy thing going on you talk a bit about in the book
3: yeah, we did. We know we just got totally sucked into you know this diplomatic spat between Australia and China, and, and it turns out uh, we didn't know this at the time, but but uh, ASIO uh, had raided the homes of four Chinese journalists back back in Sydney in June. Right. Um, and it was put to me later that, you know, it's all, well, if you rough up our journalists, we're going to rough up your journalists. And, and I think that's what happened. They, they really wanted to intimidate us. I mean, it was, it was a bit weird because, you know, they left my house after that. And um, I still don't know to this day whether I would have been locked up or not if I'd stayed in China. But the thing is, we just didn't really know what was going on. And China's become so unpredictable these mm-hmm. days. There was still this risk we could sort of be disappeared uh, into some black prison and, and never be seen again. So, you know, I think the Australian government was, was extremely nervous and decided they just had to put us under protection and get us out of there.
0: And that was a risk because Chung li the Australian newsreader, is still uh, imprisoned in China. And then the uh, the Canada, there's a couple of the two Michaels are still yeah. imprisoned over there. What do you think the China's aim was here? Was it just to make an aim of you or was it to actually get rid of uh, Australian journalists? Because there's no Australian journalists on the ground in China anymore, is there?
3: yeah there's a couple of different theories cuz i mean i i don't think it was anything to do with a particular story i was i was working on or, or anything like that and the fact they targeted Bill and I, and we were the only two journalists left in the country at the time working for Aussie media outlets, and um, so it was all very political. I think it was designed to send a message to Australia. Um, You know, you know, another sort of tit for tat uh, episode in this sort of diplomatic, you know, warfare that's been (laughs) going on for sort of nine months now. Um, And then, you know, I don't actually think. They wanted us out of there because I, th- I think it's actually now backfired on them. I mean, when you don't have any journalists on the ground in China, we're all outside of China. Mm-hmm. And, and you tend to write more negative stories about China when you're not there because, you know, you, you're talking to uh, all your sources of people in Australia. There's a very negative view about China and Australia at the moment. So when you're on the ground in China, you actually sort of go and get to talk to ordinary people and you get to do the fun and quirky stories as well. So, mm. um, you know, by having no journalists in the country, I think it's doing China a bit of a disservice.
0: Uh, in my mind, this ties in a bit to the to the escalating trade war with China. It feels like there's tariffs on everything every week. Uh, what's the long-term aim here? Are they just trying to make an example of Australia? Do you, do you think with the trade war and all this kind of stuff?
3: Yeah. like it, I mean, a year ago, we never thought it would come to anything like this. So I, I think China's really trying to make an example of Australia to, to the rest of the world. They're They're sort of trying to tell everyone else, you know, we're quite powerful now, please You know, don't mess with us, and and we're obviously a really soft target because we rely so heavily uh, on China economically. And I think China feels like we we've just got too big for our boots. When when you've got sort of the Morrison government sort of sticking its neck out and saying, hey, you know, we should have an inquiry into the origins of coronavirus, and and there's been tensions for years over the fact that Australia was sort of one of the first countries to ban Huawei. So um, yeah, I think I think they sort of want to teach us a a bit of a lesson here.
0: But we must be incredibly small fry for China really where like they have many cities with a bigger population than Australia so i guess they don't mind flinging us around a little bit
3: no, that's right. There's uh, um, the editor of this newspaper, this tabloid newspaper in China called the Global Times, which is very hawkish. I mean, he famously said last year, "Australia's like that piece of gum you get on, on your shoe. It sort of just sticks there and it keeps being a little <laughs> bit annoying, but eventually you just sort of scrape it off. So I think, you know, I think Australia's important to China. You know, they do need our iron ore um, and, a, and a few other things, but uh, I think they find us sort of quite annoying at the moment.
0: Uh, now to your book, uh, like I was just saying, if I'm a bit tired, it's because I was up late um, powering through it. I'm about two thirds of the way through. It's a great read. Uh, in my mind, it's kind of blending your stories on the ground of meeting everyone from billionaires to to uh, migrant workers, um, and it's all tied up in the way their lives have changed with the massive political and e- economic changes that have happened there. What was your aim with the book? Is that a kind of fair summary? Or Yeah, no, I'm really glad you put it that way, because I think
3: that's what I was sort of setting out to achieve, like sort of telling The story of China, but not just, you know, the politics and and the economics of it all. And there's sort of a lot of dry books um, on, on, you know, on this subject out there, but sort of to give people a bit of a picture of what it was like living in China, what life was like. Um, on the ground there, but also, you know, a bit of an idea of what the people are like because we sort of, you know, we tend to demonise the Chinese people a lot. We're always sort of, you know, writing negative things about the Chinese government, but, but the Chinese people are just fascinating. They've, they've you know, they've all gone through these enormous social and economic uh, upheavals because the country's just changed so quickly. So, you know, I had friends and their, you know, their mum and dad were starving in the Cultural Revolution and then they're sort of running around Shanghai living in multi-million dollar high rise apartments. And so their lives have sort of changed uh, really dramatically and they've, they've all got great stories to tell. So I've sort of tried to add a bit of color. You know, I've told some, you know, a lot of my own personal stories and anecdotes and involving friends and sort of tried to bring the country to, to life a bit, I suppose.
0: And one of, one of my favorite sections in the book is um, you went on a, a state organized visit to Xinjiang, which is where the oppressed Uyghur people are. And you said it resembled something a bit like the Truman Show. Am I right? <laughs>
3: That's right. You've really done your homework. But um, no, and in um, 2019, we were invited to Xinjiang by the Chinese government. And look, it was just this massive propaganda to it, but, but the scale of the whole exercise was just absolutely fascinating. I mean, it really highlighted the resources they've got at their disposal. And and I went up there with sort of 30 journalists from, from different countries all around the world. And um, I mean, it was sort of 10 days of singing and dancing Uyghurs. We went to three different cities, went to all these elaborate uh, stage shows, and then we were taken out into the desert to, to what they told us was sort of vocational training centres. So they were sort of pretending, hey, these are the re-education camps that you guys write about, and, and they're all fake. I mean, they were just sort of, you know there were daffodils growing in the garden, and people baking cookies, and and uh, we're allowed to interview all all the you know Uyghur kids at these schools. But they all had really scripted answers. They were all, all just telling us how happy they were, and they were there voluntarily. And it was just yeah, it was like the Truman Show. I mean, it, nothing seemed real. Um, And then at nighttime, you know, like any good journalist, me and a couple of others, we'd sneak out of our hotel and try and have a good look around. But you were tailed by sort of undercover uh, security guys. So they'd follow you everywhere. So you couldn't actually talk to anyone because you'd endanger those people.
0: Was it were you a bit worried if you looked around a corner there'd be like a a, a stage manager with a headset on smoking a cigarette going, Oh, not allowed here? <laughs> like was it yeah, almost we feel like a movie set almost? It did. I mean we went
3: to a lot of factories and we went to a couple of sort of textile Factories, but they were so – I mean, I've been to a lot of factories in China, and so you, you know what a real factory is and what isn't. And they were just sort of so pristine and it just felt like everything was a bit staged and everything was gleaming new and um, it, just, it just didn't feel real. You've sort of got to go with your gut instinct sometimes.
0: Uh, there was also – you gave a lot of fascinating insight into what it was like being a, a foreign correspondent in China. One of the bits I found interesting was you wrote a report on um, – the National People's Congress, which you described, I think, fairly as a rubber stamp body. And you said Xi, uh, President Xi, was very kind of expressionist. And you got you got kind of rounded up for that by a, by a diplomat or someone, didn't you? Did you have to explain to them kind of how this free press thing works? Well, yeah, that happens quite a lot when you're a foreign journalist in China. You get called in for sort of, the, we, they call it cups of tea, like a
3: cup of yep. tea chat. And then it's always very polite and friendly. And then, you know, after the first hour, then, uh, then you get a bit of a lecture <laughs> about something you Britain and you sort of get scolded. I mean, they don't, they don't sort of lock you up or anything. But um, and in this case, I was actually back in Sydney. In, in this case, on a on a sort of work trip, and you know they they called me in here at the consulate in Sydney and lectured me about you know the way I just des- I described Xi Jinping as being expressionless, and it was almost. A compliment because I was comparing him to Donald Trump, who who's yeah, a bit yeah. sort of mad, obviously, and that they took offense to that. Um, so you sort of can't really sort of write anything that that keeps them happy. And um and I think yeah, they, they struggle to understand the idea of this free press. I mean, in China the press is controlled by the government and, and I think it's uh difficult for, for China to accept that sometimes.
0: Uh, now just on G uh do you view him um, as an expansionist? Uh, I, the view I'm getting from your book so far, two thirds of the way through, is it feels like he's painted himself into a corner a little bit in terms of you're saying his anti-corruption pushes has made a lot of enemies, so he can't really um, step that st- can't, can't really step down without uh, making a lot of enemies. Uh, with Taiwan, do you think he he now has painted himself into a corner where he sees this as, as the end game that it has to be? brought back into brought back into China.
3: Yeah, I mean I think there's an argument that uh I mean she's changed the constitution so he uh he he can be president for life now effectively mm. and there is a risk for him that if one day when he eventually steps down he made a lot of enemies and and people mm, could mm. come after him but for the time being he's he's got a really firm grip on power and he's he's not going anywhere. And the Taiwan issue is really interesting because you know China has long considered you know Taiwan part of its territory and and there is this sort of long-term mm unification uh, ambition for Taiwan. And and it does want to bring Taiwan back into the fold uh, eventually, but but it's still a bit different than, say, Hong Kong, which which was part of Chinese territory. Mm. Um, And the problem for for China now is... um, you know, it does want to take Taiwan back, but but whether it tries to do it immediately or, or bides, it t- bides its time and, and does it in a more peaceful manner in the next 10 years or so is, is another question. I mean, I think we're getting a bit worked up at the moment. There's a lot of sort of war talk uh, around Taiwan, but there's actually no sign of an imminent invasion. I mean, there's sort of no sign they're they're getting the troops ready to go in. So I think we need to calm down <laughs> a little bit. But um, I mean, I think she's very clever. I think you'll try and find a way to take control of the place uh without sort of going into a conflict one day and you know let's mm. just hope that doesn't happen
0: uh based on your coverage of the taiwan election though i don't think the people of taiwan are interested in this at all how does <laughs> has she yeah. misread the room here he doesn't just expect them to come home like uh like kind of uh despondent teens coming home when they've run <laughs> out of money or something do, does he yeah. No,
3: everything changed because I think um, in around, you know, 2018, um, you know, the the opposition, political party in Taiwan, uh, the nationalists, they're they're a bit more pro-China. So they were actually gaining a lot of popularity and they look likely to win the next election. And then Hong Kong changed everything because China freaked everyone out in Taiwan by going in hard on Hong Kong and, mm-hmm. and sort of not respecting the one country, two system sort of model it held up as an example for, for Hong Kong. So that freaked out the Taiwanese population. And then when, you know, they had the presidential elections at the start of last year and um, and the, the Democratic Party won by a landslide and that really highlighted uh, how, how Taiwanese people feel, particularly younger Taiwanese people feel they don't want to be part of mainland communist China. I mean, they're, they're very different, you know, they're completely sort of different people culturally. They've, they've been brought up under sort of a very democratic Western style, style system. So they do have a different view on life. And um, yeah, I really don't think they they want to be part of Xi Jinping's China at the moment.
0: Mm, and you mentioned Hong Kong. They're having lived in, in Hong Kong uh, uh, for quite a while. Um, what's, what's the mood on the ground? I assume you've still got friends there. What's the mood on the ground in Hong Kong and what's the vibe going forward is everyone just kind of given up a little bit, or they're just like, "This is how it is, how it is now," or or is everyone just looking to to flee to other countries? Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty
3: depressing, actually, uh, Dylan. I think everyone's really given up. I mean, we you know we we had all those huge protests in 2019, and they've effectively been stamped out now. And China introduced these you know very draconian uh, national security laws, so anyone who who tries to Uh, voice their protest is locked up and I think the the Hong Kong people, um, you know, they either have to accept the situation, a lot of them are leaving, a lot of them who can, who have passports are are getting out of there, and every day you see China chipping away at currently its press freedom um, and and the legal system. So it's sort of ch- things have changed there really dramatically.
0: And they're just accepting this is how it's going to be going forward. I guess there's no way they can get these laws repealed now, is there?
3: Yeah, no. I think it's very difficult. And I think you know, I mean, the, the US and Australia and other countries objected to what was going on and sort of imposed these, you know, very superficial sanctions on on China. But really, it was pretty ineffective and. and you know, there doesn't seem to be any any solution for Hong Kong unless things, you know, dramatically changed in China. But I think you know, there's a lot of uh, underlying dissatisfaction in Hong Kong. But um, I just can't see that sort of emerging into a big protest movement again. It's just too dangerous for everyone. Wow.
0: Okay. So what's next for you? You're still the China correspondent for the Financial Review, but you're not in China. Is that correct? You're st- <laughs> still on the That's China right. beat. I'm part of there's quite a large group of
3: us now in, in Australia from from Australian outlets but also international outlets like the New York Times and and uh, yeah we're all trying to cover China from Sydney so it's all a bit. Uh, ridiculous, really. It's, it's sort of not the ideal situation, but it's just not safe to go back in there at the moment. But um, I'm, it looks like uh, I'm heading to Japan in July. The, the Australian Financial Review uh, is going to open a bureau in Tokyo and sort of cover North Asia from there. And, you know, when the borders open, we can get back into Taiwan, but uh, it's just going to be tricky getting back into China for the time being.
0: Well, I hope I hope we get some Australian journalists back there soon, and I hope I hope you're among them. Um, thanks for chatting to us. The book is The Last Correspondent: Dispatches from the Frontline of Xi's New China. Michael Smith, thank you for joining us.
3: Thanks so much for having me on, Dylan.
0: Cheers. Thank you. All right, that's News Fighters for today, June the second, twenty twenty one. News Fighters is written, presented, and produced by me, Dylan Bain, for Sans Pants Radio. A big thank you to our interview guest, Michael Smith, for stopping by. Don't forget to check out his book. The Last Correspondent, wherever books are sold. Uh, That's it. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at newsfighters.com and uh, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and hit subscribe on YouTube. That's it. Keep fighting, and bye for now.
2: This is Newsfighters, where we fight the news so you don't have to.
3: Thank you.